going. So insult away. Okay. Man, you're old. Yeah. <laughs> you're fucking old yourself. <laughs> now do that porno Batman voice for us. <laughs> you mean this voice? <laughs> okay. God, who's emceeing this fucking thing? I am the night Sam. <laughs> Or no Batman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Who is? I think Todd is. Am I? What? <laughs> it sounds like Todd's MC. <laughs> Wait. What are we doing? Who are you people? Good evening, everybody. This is Todd Kiesling, and I'm talking to these idiots at Ink Heist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, all ten of you. <laughs> Dude, it's it's 11 now come on oh, oh. we got a west Sorry. coast list for this weekend that's because i finally subscribed <laughs> <laughs> he found out you were going to be on it right yeah exactly <laughs> we i forgot to tell you the last three times i gotta take notes <laughs> is this his is this your first scheduled one this is my first. Well, no, the no. the first one that I had with Shane on here uh, was scheduled. Oh, uh, right. It was okay. just a that, chat, an informal chat, I guess. Yeah, that was that the one-on-one episode. That was a fun one. It also taught me that I would only want to do that with people I know. Yeah. yeah. People I'm comfortable with. It's like a, to- a guest that was totally foreign to me. Fuck that noise. <laughs> 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 it's like okay, when I've got people around me who already know i don't have any filters i'm all right but if i'm not sure then the social anxiety comes up and grabs me by the nuts same 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 anyway no go ahead not by the nuts i just was gonna not finish that sentence i was yeah see i I knew where you were going and i was just gonna let it go but shane couldn't I, well, I heard the word by, and then she stopped and said, wait, by the what now? Because since you were going to correct me about what you were being grabbed by. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, don't leave Shane's mind hanging like that. <laughs> Laurel's got bigger balls than the three of us, though, so That's, it's all right. That it's is all, very true. It's all relative. I've also got better bourbon than anybody right now. That's it's so absolutely good. true. It's yeah. so good. I've got better weed. That is also true. I have no it's doubt. It's also though. true. So, how are you guys doing? Pretty good. Doing, how are you? Doing good. You know, it's been uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. It has. It has. Well, and I mean, the primary thing of which you you released Devil's Creek. Yes, finally, after like ten thousand years. <laughs> that has been a long beat up on that when i mean because i remember you were talking about that what at least a year ago right uh yeah like the book has technically been done since i mean if you're not counting like copy edits and whatnot it's been done since uh mm, gosh I don't even know at this point. It was done in 2018. Um, and got picked up by Silver Shamrock in, I guess, it was early summer, May-ish, June-ish. 
Oh no, I guess it was late June because we started talking to Silver Shamrock in May of 2019, and uh, we pushed out the release date to this summer. Um, because we absolutely knew there was going to be a pandemic, and why the fuck would Todd want to go to bookstores to promote a book? Uh, no, we we pushed it out to help promote it more, and also just to give it some time to percolate. Uh, you know, give ourselves some time to give it another pass on the edit side, just to make sure that we it was clean as possible. Uh, give it time to get out to reviewers and for blurbs and, you know, go through the motions. I mean, you're, you know, I know this is kind of like the indie independent publishing space, but, you know, if you want to start getting books into the hands of like the trade reviews, like, you know, Kirkus or Publishers Weekly or Library Journal, uh, you got to get your books out to them like months in advance. Um, and even then it's not a guarantee, like, Devil's Creek, you know, they haven't reviewed it. Bastards. Um, That's it. I'm canceling my subscription. No shit. Publishers Weekly. (laughs) But, um, you know, you you gotta take time, and I think that I know in the indie world, it's usually just like, well, it's done. Let's get it off to an editor and get it out next week. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just I don't roll that way. Um, I never have. I mean, I kind of like you know when it's done mentality. Um, and I know Ken at Silver Shamrock wanted to initially release it October 2019, and my agent and I were both like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's going to get buried in the the Halloween publishing rush it'll there's just going to be too many books coming out yeah um plus you know it it just to me it just kind of had like a a summertime feel i mean the book takes place in in early september you know in in kentucky and that's always just for me has always kind of epitomized summertime even though school's already started it's probably like the most humid part of the summer (laughs) Yes, it uh, is. <laughs> and it's the hottest, the hottest part of the summer, humid, most humid part of the summer, and so I don't know. It just seemed like a good fit, kind of leading into that time of year uh, to release it. Then, and then also, you know, there was also other, you know, figuring how, okay, how realistically, how soon can we get edits done, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's kind of the explanation for the long. Uh, gestation period, but it's finally hatched. It's uh, yeah. burst forth from the, yeah. you know. For some of us, it's been a really long gestation period because some of us kind of followed along with you while you were writing it and and agonizing over it some days. And it's kind of like to to people like that, it feels like it's been like twelve years. Oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> I can't well, it, imagine how it feels for you. <laughs> no, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean, I. I have friends that I, I went to school with whom I've not seen since high school who have been following this thing, you know, since I first announced that I was writing about our hometown. So you're talking years <laughs> that they've been asking, when can I buy this? When is this coming out? And I'm like, dude, it's not even fucking done. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, if you're still alive, I'll give you a call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's an epic undertaking, though. Um, uh, you know, it, it it is, and looking back, I still don't know how the hell I, I managed to get through it. Like, I, I, I know in our, our the last time we, we talked, Shane, one-on-one, I talked about how I kind of looked at it as my, at it as my Hail Mary because I was trying very hard to write something that would be commercial enough that might get, you know, take off, but also, you know, still have that, you know, not no holds barred, no compromises approach to, to horror. And at the time, I was in the shitty job situation, so it was even more incentive to try to write something that would get me the fuck out of there. Uh, I had just signed on with my agent when I started writing it, and you know, it. it I knew it was going to be a long book. I didn't know it was going to be that long. <laughs> um, and even now, like I, I have a. Uh, an index that my editor Amelia put together when she did her first pass. Like she wrote down basically every proper noun in that book and an explanation or definition of what it is or who they are. And, uh, I, she did that like after the, after, you know, after the fact reading, you know, going through it after I'd written it, I don't know how the hell I wrote it without something like that. Because, you know, you start, you've got, I don't know how many characters, if you want to go technically how many characters are in that book, just by mentioning names, you know, so-and-so who lives down the street or lives in this neighborhood, da-da-da-da-da, they're never heard from again. You know, the off chance that you do have to reference that later, it's like, well, shit, do they have blue hair, brown hair, red hair, green hair, I don't know. (laughs) That's interesting for the sake of continuity, that's pretty useful with a big cast like that yeah yeah i can definitely see why stephen king hired somebody to do the same thing with his dark tower books when he was finishing the series (laughs) no kidding (laughs) and uh todd um i think i just wanted to comment real quick that i think you did a good job when you said you described it as like your hail mary with like the no holds barred horror and kind of like something commercial because it had like that big feel that big epic feel to it and reading as much horror and stuff as we do um like i i almost have become like almost like numb to being like creeped out by books like i'll think Uh Cool, but I'm not as creeped out. And I have to say, man, Devil's Creek was probably the creepiest goddamn book I've read in like <laughs> a very, very long time. Like I no bullshit. I would definitely consider this like one of my all time favorites. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um I'm kinda in the same boat, Rich. Like when it comes to horror, I mean, I try to read as much of it as I can, but I also try to read outside the genre as much as I can. Um, and it, like these days, it seems like I spend more time watching horror films than reading horror fiction. And it's just I've consumed so much of it over the last like five or six years that it takes a lot for me to be affected by something. And, you know, I feel like I wanted to kind of 
try to tap into some of the the dread and creep factor that Legati gets to, but without being like super literary. Because um, I feel like that that can be a turn off to some readers. Uh, nothing against Legati, I love his work, but I can only take it in small doses. Um, it's kind of like you know reading some of the older weird fiction writers from back in the day. You know, some of their, like, Lovecraft, Lovecraft especially, because his, his language is so stiff and antiquated at times. Yeah. yeah, it's, but hard, even, it's hard to get to the meat of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Even Chambers was that way to a degree. And, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, very, very floral language. And, you know, but, you know, there, that was, the, that was the, the style of the time. I mean, that's yeah. how people wrote. Um, you know, Algernon Blackwood's another one that comes to mind. It's like I, I have trouble getting through one of his stories just because however both they are. Maybe that's because I, you know, have ADD or whatever. But um, I was gonna say no because I do too, but I do too. So um, I can't say that it's not because you're ADD. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, anyway. for example, I don't even know where I was going with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, because uh, because because this asshole totally interrupted you and doesn't remember even why now. <laughs> but uh, Todd, just out of curiosity, because you said you were kind of in the same boat, and like I'm curious to know this because I've heard writers mention this in the past. Like when you were writing a lot of these scenes, like did you ever manage to like kind of creep yourself out? Like when you came up with something, like I don't want to get too far into it but like whether it be the mythology or kind of you know the stuff that takes place like did you ever just creep yourself out while you were writing it uh there were certain characters that kind of creep me out just not in like in a scary way but just in a comfortable way you know like um i'm assuming you guys have all finished the book i don't want to spoil anything uh I have not finished it yet. You no. motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you how much you wanted to go into spoilers on this. Well, I don't want to spoil it for you guys if you haven't finished reading it. So, uh, I also, you know, otherwise we could just say, you know, drop a spoiler warning for readers or our listeners and, you know, let them fast forward like five minutes or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, go for, there well, are. Up to Shane. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's uh, fine. That's fine with me. Uh, Shane, you're probably far enough into it though. You'll know who I'm talking about. So there's uh there are two. So there's like six, you know, primary characters, not really main characters, but the story kind of revolves around the six of them. They're the survivors of the death cult, and uh, there are two of them. Uh, first, I should mention that they're all they're all half siblings. They have different mothers, the same father. And there are two of them who are basically in an incestuous relationship. Uh, and, you know, that I, I wasn't planning that, that kind of came out of nowhere. And when I realized where it was going, that kind of, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know, there was that there was the the whole uh, implied uh, 
child abuse with the antagonist Jacob Masters and the children and um, you know some of the I would say the the more gross out scenes in the book probably just kind of turned my stomach a little bit because it was also for me uh, this was my first in my mind my first real balls to the wall horror horror story uh i've written horror but they're all kind of weird not really what i would call traditional horror and this was my you know my attempt at you know writing a more what i would consider a traditional horror story but i also didn't want to pull any punches you know i i wanted to go see how dark and depraved i can get and then we'll scale it back on the edit if necessary um so case in point, there was actually a deleted scene. Uh, I mentioned this in other interviews, but uh, there's a deleted scene toward the end of the book when you know shit's kind of hitting the fan. Uh, there was a whole like subplot with the nurse figure at the hospital, and uh, like she's only in one scene in the published edition, but in the original draft, there was like you know she was one of the recurring town focused characters and her scene kind of climaxed in no pun intended climaxed in a a nursing home where her mother was interred on the day that you know shit's kind of hitting the fan at the end near the end of the book and she basically walks in to find that the nursing home is full of you know these people who've been corrupted by this you know ancient god and they're all fucking each other, and it's a pretty, uh, pretty graphic scene of this massive, uh, this massive senior citizen orgy. <laughs> and uh, I distinctly remember writing it because I was sitting in the lobby of my car dealership waiting for my oil to be changed. <laughs> <laughs> So he wrote a scene about people getting their oil changed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were getting lubed up, all right. Yeah. Yeah. See what it did there, Shane? Did you catch that? I did. I caught that. I'm glad. I want to make sure you're paying attention, buddy. <laughs> Rarely. Uh, uh, you know, there are scenes like that. Um, I would say the scene... Not really creeped me out, but I was excited to get to it because I knew how creepy it would be for other people. Uh, the scene where the figment of Christ appears to the uh, the minister. That was, yeah, that one got me quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that got a lot of people, I think. I'm pretty proud of that one. Uh, it's one of my favorite scenes. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah, especially because there's it's a little bit of like a, oh, there's nothing. Oh, there's something worse there. Okay. That was really good. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, that, go ahead, Laurel. Were you going to say something? Well, I was, it's like slightly off topic, but it, no, I'm going to, I'll just ask it later. It's not even remotely relevant. It's okay. just Kentucky related. So please proceed, Rich. <laughs> ask away. I, I don't care. <laughs> oh, well, I, there was just, there was a Sturgill Simpson reference. Yeah. I was curious if you had caught Sunday Valley ever when you were in Lexington. No, I don't know what that is. Okay, well, Sunday Valley was the band that Sturgill Simpson played in before he went solo. No, Um, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, and they, I don't think they were exactly local. I don't think they were in Lexington, but they played the Dame a lot. Um, and they were a hell of a lot of fun. So I, I was trying to think, and I was thinking that that was close to the time you would have been in college at UK. So I didn't know if you had happened to catch them. So, uh, I did go to the Kentucky theater once or twice when I was, uh, there was this girl I was dating and she was really into the wood songs, uh, feature that they did. I went to that a couple of times, um, kind of like a folky sort of thing that they put on public access TV there in the city. Uh, I don't know if they st- that's still around even. Um, I believe so. Last, oh, wow. last I checked, it was. yeah. No, that's been. The Kentucky is beautiful too. I love that theater. Oh, it's a gorgeous theater. Yeah. I saw Bubba Hotep there. Me too. Were you? Did you? Was oh, it when oh Bruce Campbell God. was there? Did you <laughs> go was, to the Bruce Campbell signing? Yeah. Fuck at, yes, at, I was at, there, man. This is best. Yes. Yeah. Oh. My God, yeah. And then they screened Bubba Hotep. Fuck yes, man. That's awesome. That's they hilarious. Bubba Hotep. They also showed uh, Evil Dead 2. Uh, That's in that. right. Yeah, yeah, my date didn't like horror at all. <laughs> Terrible night. I can see why it didn't work out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, that's funny. Okay, sorry to get everybody off track. No, no, it's when fine. I, Let's talk about saw... a small, small fucking world. That's I crazy. know. That's what I was just, I wondered, of course, Sunday Valley is obviously not together anymore, um, but they're, I still have one of their CDs and that's, that's, it was a lot of fun. They just always had really very high energy shows. So, yeah, I actually started listening to Sturgill Simpson around the time I started writing it because I, a friend of mine had uh, shared a, a video because he, he's a Kentucky, you know, he's a Kentucky boy and, uh, you know, we started and I started watching, you know, some of his videos and kind of listening and like, this does not sound like country that I grew up listening to. Therefore, I can actually listen to this. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's not talking about, you know, losing his his trailer to his, you know, third third ex-wife. He's, you know, talking about <laughs> tripping on psilocybin and seeing God. That's uh, that's a whole other level for that uh, that genre. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the song in particular that I referenced, no lyrics, of course, cause that would cost money, but, um, it ain't, it ain't all flowers. Um, nice. the song. That's yeah, that's crazy. That's, and well, and I, I had, I did love that part too. Cause you know, Riley switches it over and it's, uh, was it Megadeth or, I can't remember who was playing, but it was metal. And he was like, it was like the warm blanket of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much. That was me at 15, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, sorry to derail. No, it's fine. No, no it's, that's cool. Cause, uh, and two, I just wanted to mention, I'll have to ask you again, Laura, what that band's name was. Cause I didn't write it down. Uh, quick enough but i think the first time i heard sturgill was that time uh his now at least to me infamous saturday night live performance i don't know if you guys have seen it but i have not no oh man you gotta look it up oh just because like you know most of those things they're almost kind of like rehearsed i guess like to the point where it's just kind of like you know everybody's I don't know how to describe it, but he kind of just goes all out. And then like at the end, he just like breaks his guitar sort of by slamming it down. It was just like a wild, wild performance. That's awesome. Not, 
Yeah, not usually kind of what you see on like those late night uh, performances. Yeah, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think it was called Arms. I think was the name of the song. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, I I saw his um, a clip from I think it was Bonnaroo last year, uh, where he did like a a ten minute version of brace for impact and it's like mostly just a jam session with the band and I'm like oh my god this is awesome he is he yeah, is stellar he's he's high energy his and i'm not sure who wrote the lyrics for the sunday valley songs that i was familiar with but it was just i mean it was there was a lot going on there it was it was really high energy they were really fun shows but there was just a lot to it you know as far as the songs went um I know there's one actually that made me think of this book because it was, uh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's like, it's basically sung from the point of view of, of Christ. Like, you know, uh, what have I done to deserve this thorny crown? You never asked me if I wanted to be the son of God. Yeah. Um, and that nice. one's good. I don't know if he plays that on his own or what, but. That's cool. I didn't know he had his own, had a, had a different band before he, you know, kind of became known, you know, for solo stuff. Yeah, uh, it, they were good. I think there was a lot of ego going on there as what that uh, split up. So, as usually happens in a situation like that, so yeah, you, get, you yeah. get all those creatives together in a room, the ego is going to overflow. It's true. Yep. So yeah, Todd. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about, and hopefully it's not too terribly personal personal but um with devil's creek especially with kind of um you know what jacob masters kind of how he leads his church and stuff like there's kind of like a heavy heavy focus kind of on like religion and kind of how people interact with religion and i was just Mm -hmm. curious if if that was like kind of the main theme that you kind of wanted to put into that book like if that was something you wanted to explore like before you even maybe had all the plot ideas. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I kind of knew going in where I was going to end up, you know, what I wanted to be the big, you know, finale for the story. And I wanted to do something that would be subversive, um, in respect to the area where I grew up and, you know, to really understand where I'm coming from there, you'd have to kind of understand what the town of Corbin, Kentucky was like. And I can't really say what it's like now cause I don't live there. Um, but you know, I, I've mentioned in other interviews recently that, you know, I grew up not really feeling like I fit in there, and there's a definite um, social caste system in place there where most of the the families that you know have always lived there, and their kids and you know their grandkids have all kind of just never left. They've gone to the same high school, they same gone to the the same sporting events and all that shit. You know, they go to the same church and uh you know i grew up being an outsider essentially because my you know my mom wasn't from there 
Uh, she was from the neighboring town. And, uh, you know, my parents got divorced when I was a very, you know, very young, at a very young age. And my dad, you know, he he went to Corbin. He was, a you know, on the football team the year they won state and all this stuff. You know, he was a football player. So, you know, but he was also in college. He went away. And, you know, so I'm growing up. My mom's kind of trying to make ends meet. We're living with my great-grandmother, who was the inspiration for Imogene, actually, uh, Jack's grandmother in the book. Uh, you know, we we tried to um, just have a life there. And I didn't fit in because I wasn't one of these, you know, one of these old Corbin family, you know, from an old Corbin family. Uh, my mom didn't fit in because she was, you know, not from Corbin either. And we were poor and, you know, with any particular social class system there, I mean, you've got the, you have the haves and the have nots. So I grew up from a very early age, not feeling like I fit in. And doubly so when it came to going to church, because those same people that I would, you know, be bullied by and be ostracized from every day at school would then be there in church every Sunday, you know, praising Jesus and, you know, asking forgiveness and love thy neighbor and all that bullshit. So, you know... I grew up seeing this and you know I, I talked pretty at length with the this is horror guys uh, we had a really interesting conversation about religion uh, a few weeks ago um, you know my, my personal stance on it is that you know I myself think that religion as a construct is inherently evil I think that religion was created by man to divide your fellow man and take advantage of your fellow man. It's a power structure. Um, and that's my personal feeling. I think that you know people are spiritual and they find peace that way, then I'm all for it. I don't think you need to organize and let someone dictate it for you. Um, so... A lot of my feelings on that has its origins in Corbin, Corbin's class structure, Corbin's, you know, hypocrisy. Especially when you start digging into the history of the town, which is another thing that I avoided with Devil's Creek for as long as I could until I couldn't anymore. And I kind of had to touch on that. Uh, we can get to that in a minute. Um, but yeah, as far as like when it came to the intent behind the story of this very, I'll even say negative examination of religion in general and how it affects people, you basically have someone who is abusing the belief structure to manipulate others and use them to his own, you know, to suit his own needs. Uh, you 
have a cult leader who essentially gets all these people to follow him into the wilderness, forsake their lives, give up all their money, all their property for the sake of, quote, the church, end quote. And, you know, they end up dead because of it. You know, there's, I'll even say it's heavy-handed, but, I mean, there's definitely a significance there. You know, that's intentional. Uh, I essentially wanted to write a story that shows to an extreme degree how religion and fanaticism and fundamentalism, which I would argue you could probably say are interchangeable at this point, uh, how they destroy a community in a span of days. You know, the the evil that's in, you know, that's underneath Devil's Creek is just another way of saying, you know, this is this is religion. It poisons the minds of all these people and gets them to do horrific things in the name of God they think is going to save them. So, sorry to get really deep on you there. No, no, <laughs> but, man. That was, uh, I'm pretty yeah. much heavily in line with a lot of what you said there, so... You know, I grew up in inner city, but it was kind of a microstructure, very much like a small town, and that everybody in the neighborhood went to the um, same churches, pretty much. And in that, all the guys that used to kick my ass on the way home because I didn't have new clothes were also there on their fucking knees praising Jesus the next weekend. And yeah, and yeah, I'm pretty well well in line with everything you went to there you know and, yeah i think that that's where all this resentment comes from i mean, i i resent a lot of the people that i had to see on a daily basis because you know you'd see them at the uh the fca meetings every week and do you guys know what that is is fca still a thing I don't know what it is it was like a fellowship of christian athletes or something like that oh yeah that's yep. still a thing yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm not an athlete. I never was. So. No, I, I. You know, even up until my, you know, my freshman year of college, I was trying to find a way to fit into that system. I was trying to find a niche in this giant faith structure that would work for me. And that's another thing that were, you know, contributing to why I never felt like I fit in, and just made me feel alienated even more, is because. You know, I'd be sitting there on on Sunday, you know, okay, everybody bow your heads to pray. And, like, I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs, listening to my own voice. Uh, You know, thinking about, I can't wait until this shit's over so I can go play video games. You know? Uh, I thought it was an interesting parallel, too, with the the First Baptist Church that you've got there. Because you've got Jacob Master's Church. Uh-huh. And then you have this, the, I guess, what you would consider more mainstream First Baptist Church. But, yes. you know, when you look at a lot of what is, I suppose, enticing um, about the, the Master's Church is that a lot of the things that are called sin, you know, that are, are really just extremely natural, it, you know, to be told, okay, well, you don't have to feel like you're going to hell for having sex anymore, 
you know, you can see that that sort of a mindset can make people a lot more, um, I guess, susceptible to that. If you're if you're held to a standard that doesn't make any sense anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I looked at a lot of that's you know a lot of the kind of the the way religion is structured you know especially Christianity especially the Southern you know Baptist faith in which I, I grew up you know you grow up hearing about how you know the ways of the flesh are sin and you know pretty much anything you do is gonna you know put you in hell and the only thing that's you know saving you is the supposed love and forgiveness of this guy who was murdered you know several thousand years ago and I don't know where I'm going with that it just there's I guess if I'm trying to say anything, it's that my feelings on religion are complicated, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, but I, I, I wanted, go ahead. No, go go ahead. Uh, I wanted to just try and distill that down into the the story as much as I could, and use the characters in the story to kind of be the vessel for that you know that message i guess and it's there for people who want to go digging for it but i i also the trick is to try and not bog the story down with incessant preaching because then i would be with the same thing that i'm railing against yeah don't make it the story yeah and i think that's i mean i think that was definitely successful it's it's obviously a theme it has to be yeah you know because and that's part of the interesting you know, thing that the question that you have to answer in a haunted house story, you have to answer why do they stay in the house? And in a in a cult oriented story, you have to answer why were people drawn to this? You know, mm. so I think that certainly is answered there without hitting it over the head. It's just something that in particular, you know, because I you know, growing up not that far from where you did, but Lexington is a really, really different setup. Um and, you know, in listening, I have not caught your This Is Horror appearance yet, but I um, I have listened to a couple of your other recent interviews, and I also have been listening to Lisa Quigley's interview on This Is Horror. And I don't know if you've listened to any of her stuff, but she grew, she had to, her family had to extricate themselves from a Christian cult. Oh, my God. I got, no, I haven't listened to this, but I'm going to tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it was interesting. I was thinking of the parallels with that as I was reading Devil's Creek because, you know, again, I've listened to several of your interviews. I'm, I'm, you know, had a pretty good idea of what your your thoughts on it were. And when I when she was talking about, you know, because uh, Michael David Wilson was asking her what her uh, current beliefs were, and she was talking about how, you know, initially once she turned away from it, she's like, well, I'm an atheist, but I didn't feel like I was really an atheist after a while. I thought, well, I'm turning my back on God who's still there. And it was very complicated. And she had all those feelings that were like, well, I just didn't want to be punished for something that seemed so normal. It all seemed so arbitrary. Um, and, you know, this description of it and and it just these kind of rules, um, I, I don't know. It's just interesting. It's like it made me kind of, it made me want to sit down and have like a big you know, drunken conversation with everyone about their yeah, <laughs> no, and because you're of, absolutely right. Though I mean, it's set the rules in opposition to your instincts, and you control whoever follows. Yes, 
I yeah. mean, it's it's a it's a means of control, controlling people. Uh, you know, see also Jim Jones. Yes. <laughs> you know, see also uh, you know the Bakers. You know, Billy Graham. Look at fucking Pat Robertson on the Seven Hundred Club. Oh, and, God. Yeah. A lot of it's, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and I recognize that so much of religion sometimes doesn't. And I just sort of, I look at, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, um, which bored me silly until I was, a, until the year that I went through confirmation. And we got this brand new pastor and he was Scottish and he was incredibly well read and he was highly intelligent. And the sermons, he, it was like hearing his speech from like a, just, I, I don't know, just just somebody who was like hearing a speech from a scholar mm-hmm. and the things that he said and the way that he related things while I was going through confirmation just made it much easier for me to to be like, OK, well, this stuff makes sense and that doesn't and none of it is contrary to each other. So, you know, it's not like it made me want to run around trying to save everyone's soul and put them in the Presbyterian church. But I did really think when I was listening to Lisa and as you know, I've heard you talking about the church that you grew up in, like how different, you know, a view that that sets up. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, mean to make it about Presbyterianism no, or trying no, to. No, 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 it's <laughs> that's fine. I mean, I'm I'm totally cool with talking about religion. I could talk about religion all day, every day. Um, you know, it, it's it's been an incredibly difficult thing uh, for me personally, growing up, you know, with and coming to terms with, simply because, you know, it's not fun to be made to feel like you've made your parents feel like failures because they didn't raise a Christian son. Uh, You know, I've kind of come to terms with with that and come to terms with, you know, my parents and our differing viewpoints and we just kind of agree to disagree. But, you know, it's something that I struggled with for a long time. I felt like, okay, you know, you grow up hearing that you're going to go to hell if you turn your back on the church. Well, here's me turning my back on the church, not just a church, all churches, um, and saying, fuck religion. And, uh, you know, and and yet I, I don't identify as an atheist. Uh, I, you know... I'm sure some atheists will just, you know, kind of shake their heads and turn their nose up at this, but I consider myself an agnostic because at the end of the day, after much soul searching and meditation and just general thought on the topic, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's a higher power and neither do you and neither does anybody else. And, you know, I'm just going to, live the best life I can and if there's a God then I'll answer for any wrongs he may he or she may charge against me in which case I'll probably call he or she an asshole <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and gladly go to hell if there is a hell uh, but you know at the same time you know if we die and there's nothing else and that's just it then you know hey at least I'll have lived the best life I could and do what I could while I was here. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not going to let 
you know, divine reward or divine damnation dictate how I live my life. I, you know, I see, you know, religious texts, and they're no different than any other philosophical text. They're just a way of, live, you know, explaining reality, explaining, you know, who we are, explaining how we think, why we think, how we should be toward our fellow, you know, fellow man and woman. Um, you know, be excellent to each other and party on, dudes, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, I mean, it really boils down to that. Don't be a fucking asshole. And it is as simple as that. That is, yeah. is exactly right. So, that's kind of, was at the heart of the whole religious theme at, in Devil's Creek. And the more I started digging into it, the, the more it started digging up old memories and just old feelings. And, you know, it was very cathartic. Because I realized, you know, I've been holding on to a lot of this resentment, you know, my whole life without really realizing it. So I was able to work through that in the book. And I think that's partially why it comes across as strongly as it does. Uh, you know, you have the, like you mentioned, Laurel, you've got the parallel between the cults and First Baptist downtown. And they're really, they're kind of, you know, they're mirror images of, you know, or maybe better, a better analogy would be to say that they're, you know, two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're not all that different. Not really. You still got someone standing up there telling them, you know, what to do, how to think, you know, how to breathe. Telling them to put their money in the in the offering plate. Yeah, and and all of it's arbitrary. Yep, it's extremely arbitrary. Yeah, and I I think like how you had mentioned that it was kind of cathartic uh, for you to write and how it came across so strongly. I definitely picked up on that, especially kind of you know just kind of how you. Not only those elements, but kind of how you constructed uh, Stafford, the town. And, uh, like, it felt very real. And I'm sure since it was kind of set in the same area that, you know, this was a very personable book, personal book for you. So usually those kind of stories that are, you know, intensely personal to the author, they generally have, you know, a very profound effect on the reader as well and that definitely came through for me and i, I was actually going to ask you about that but you kind of already touched on it with the other questions uh, yeah uh thank you for saying so um pretty much most of what's in there about stafford the landscape the 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 area in general the history uh is true to life uh, names changed, of course. Um, little details like when Jack's reminiscing about his uh, his grandmother telling him about the the guy who put the star on the water tower. 
uh, in town every Christmas when they light it up. You know, the guy who did that, he fell to his death and left behind a family, you know, two kids or whatever. I don't remember exactly. That really happened. They've got a, you know, a park or like a, they've got some kind of memorial to him in one of the parks downtown. Um, so anytime I've been, you know, granted it's been several years now, but whenever I was in town at Christmas time and they'll see the star, I always think about that story because my granny would all, never hesitate to tell me that a guy fell to his death <laughs> putting it up there. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's that. There's the the relationship between Jack and his grandmother. Uh, as I said, that, you know, Imogene Tremley is based on my great-grandmother Mildred. Uh the area, you know, she lived, her house was on Standard Avenue outside of, you know, town. Uh, the only difference is, is that where in the book there's a hillside that has a Victorian house that stands out like a sore thumb. That's actually just a, a field. There's no hill there. There's a neighborhood there, but there's no, there's no hillside. Uh, and that's ultimately why I decided to not use the real town's name because I needed to make changes to the landscape that would make sense. You know, and I couldn't do that by saying, well, here's this this house in Corbin. And next thing I know, I've got people driving there like I didn't see no fucking house. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're more likely to hear from the people in Corbin. That house is two streets over. And 20 years older than you mentioned. <laughs> that is perfect. Oh, my God. I will, I will never fucking forget. My, my mom is a writer, and she wrote uh, one of her books was set in Lexington. And the Herald Leader reviewer, like, at the end of the review, she mentioned that she liked it. But she, the, the title of it was, like, Welcome to Writer's Bizarro Lexington. And... <laughs> It was shit like it's not Tate's Creek Pike. It's like well it it, it was thirty years ago. I mean Let's, Linus doesn't have a whatever it's like it did thirty years ago. Go back. When were when did you get here? Are you an outsider? It just was <laughs> it was just so nuts. I was like, why are you focusing on this? But it terrified me. I, you know, like I wrote my book and I said it in Memphis and then I rearranged things. I was like, oh, God, they're going to start calling me. They're going to be so angry. But thankfully, no one's gotten pissed at me from Memphis yet. But. <laughs> you know, you nailed the the perfect accent for the Kentucky for the Kentuckian backhanded compliment. <laughs> like it, it's like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> Another thing I, I love about the accent is how sometimes they, they're, they're, the accent kind of rises in in pitch toward the end of the sentence, like I just did. <laughs> like, yep. do you guys remember that commercial with the pothole, the talking pothole, the insurance commercial? Yeah, vaguely. Okay. The, talking with like a southern accent well i mean that was a perfect example it's like you know well you should call you should call the insurance company or some junk but i won't i can't do that because i'm a pothole <laughs> 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 
There's the podcast title. I'm a pothole. I'm a pothole. There you go. Noted. I'm not. I'm not sure that's going to edge out porno Batman. Um, yeah. I don't know. We're going to have to talk that. Over. Sorry, Todd. Say that again in porno Batman. <laughs> I just. I just want to hear more about the edging. <laughs> I just want to hear more about the ending. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, that's the end of my career tonight. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I don't know. We were just trying to do a podcast, and Todd started getting all fucking horny Batman on us and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're never inappropriate. Yeah, never. No. Not at all. Um, um, yeah, I don't think we we could practice and still not outdo Max Booth. That guy will destroy your show every time. <laughs> <laughs> Max Booth the third. I apologize. He doesn't mean it, Max. No. <laughs> he knows it. Uh, yeah, the 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 town is. I mean, I, I really don't expect, you know, many people from Corbin to actually read the book. Uh, you know, uh, and those who do, I'm sure, are going to take issue with all sorts of, you know, things I say in there, especially about the town. And, you know, there's the, the issue with the town's history that I go into. That's always been a sore topic. Um, but, you know, I also feel like the town really hasn't owned up to it either. So, uh, yeah, uh, Corbin, Kentucky, not a good place. <laughs> and stay tuned for the sequel. <laughs> you've, you've always got the backup, though. If they start talking shit, you'd be like, I said Stafford. Yeah. Why are you suddenly the, getting so defensive, Corbin? It's the small penis defense that Michael Crichton used <laughs> yeah. when. Uh... Exactly. <laughs> you guys familiar with that? Yep. I, I yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. For <laughs> listeners, go go uh, look that up on Wikipedia. It's the small penis defense, Michael Crichton. I wouldn't like. You definitely need to specify Michael Crichton because otherwise you might get other stuff coming up in your search and I can't be liable for that. Yeah, because the rumor is he does have a small penis, so don't look up Michael Crichton and small penis. Michael Crichton's dead, dude. Well, probably just probably just smaller to, now. Way to disparage the dead. <laughs> dude. I have no respect for the dead man. They're just <laughs> dust. <laughs> That's very Kansas of you. <laughs> oh, my God. So, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I have a topic. No. Oh. I have an Shit. art question, unless Shane had a question. I keep talking no, over okay. Shane. Go I've ahead. gone for two weeks. I haven't got to trounce you in two whole weeks. And so, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um, so I, so I know, okay, that you, you know, you, you are, I don't know how to say this without sounding dumb. You do art, right? So, 
Uh, <laughs> I'll make pictures. <laughs> you make pictures. Good. <laughs> so, I draw. Uh, yeah, I, I I do art. Uh, I do uh, some graphic design. Um, I don't really draw as much anymore. But I was um I was kind of curious on, on two fronts here. So for one, um, I have my my own fabulous little version of the idol that I ordered, and I'm terribly happy with them. My two year old kids. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh yes, no, I love that thing. I'm I'm super happy with it. But yeah, Rich called it. Sebastian has been trying to jack it like forever. I didn't think he could reach it, and he came running up to me talking about a skeleton. I was like, give me my damn idol back. But uh-huh. um, but, yeah, so. keep that thing away from kids. <laughs> Honestly, the idol is probably at more risk than Sebastian is. But you know, um, but it's mine, so I'm keeping it. Uh, so the first part of the question I had was, I was just curious how that came about. I so you've known is it. Does he go by Tony? Is it Tony? Yeah, it's Tony. Okay. So how did, have you known him for a while? How did you guys come up with doing this part of the marketing element? Cause I love it. Uh, so I've known Tony for several years now, uh, going back to like God, 2012, I think 2011. Um, we kind of got to know each other, uh, around the time my second novel, the liminal man came out back in 2012. Um, he his novel, the soundtrack to the end of the world, had just come out through Bad Moon Books. Um, so he and I were kind of like doing the blog tour thing, you know, and when when those were still effective, and you know, we just he 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 lives like two hours away from me, you know, easy, it's an easy drive. He lives up in the Poconos. So we hung out a couple of times, and I read his stuff. I really like his writing. Uh, it's fun. It's you know, it's very. It's more of a. I would say. More of an adolescent, immature version of Rod Serling. <laughs> that, that is awesome. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, like the first, I think the first line of his novel soundtrack is like, the apartment hallway smelled like shit. <laughs> and I mean, he he's definitely I, I could see him like definitely fitting in in some of the bizarro uh, circles, uh, bizarro genre. Um, some of his stuff is way out there. Uh, anyway, I I published his uh, his collection, Greetings from Moon Hill. A few years ago, it was a Kickstarter project that we did, so we could kind of marry his fiction with his sculptures. And um, he got into sculpting initially because writing wasn't paying the bills, and uh, he discovered he had a knack for it. And he's done some amazing sculptures. He did a a, a version of Baby Freddy from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I can't remember if it's the dream child or one of the other ones. They all kind of blur together, but the one where Freddy Krueger is a creepy little baby. (laughs) Uh, He did a a, a rendition of that. He did one of the, the, a bust of the killer, one of the killer clowns from outer space. Um, I've got a bunch of his sculptures here. And so fast forward to devil's Creek, you know, something that I started doing when I was kind of just drained and couldn't really focus enough to write in uh, work on the book. I take a night or two off and just sketch out 
some of the stuff that I, you know, that I was re- referencing in the story, like the 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 sketch of the idol, for example, is one of them. Um, the symbols used in the ritual and a couple of the rituals that are referenced. Uh, you know, like there's the whole like phase of the moon chart that I drew uh, that appears in the book. And when I, I I sketched the idol based on, you know, some broad descriptions that were in the text at the time. It's a bit more defined at this point now that I actually had an idea of what it looks like, you know, in detail. Uh, and, you know, I sent it to Tony just on a, on a whim. I said, hey, you know, this would be a really cool tie-in if the book ever gets published. So fast forward to april of this year (laughs) and tony's finally reading the book and i say finally because he had the book for like two fucking years tony (laughs) uh he was finally reading the book and i told him i said you know if it would be really cool if you made a sculpture just like a small run of these i mean shit i'll pay you for the materials just so i can have one i don't care if you sell it so you know we worked out uh, a deal uh, as an official licensed product, and I say that with quotations. <laughs> uh, and he he nailed it uh, first time. He sent me a photo of the actual clay sculpture that he was going to cast, and it was perfect. I mean, he got the the drawing and then some. I mean, he added some embellishments that made it look even older. Uh, and it's just this. I, I'm. I've got it right here with me. I've got mine. Uh, it's staring at me and smiling. <laughs> um, and it's just. I, I keep. I just keep looking at it and holding it because it, I'm just in awe of his talent. I mean, he took a two-dimensional drawing that I, I did, you know, in the span of like 45 minutes, and turned it into this physical object. And I, I think that's so impressive that somebody can do that uh so uh yeah tony was always in my on my mind when i i drew that you know sketch but you know i didn't really think that it was going to be a real thing until earlier this summer so yeah thank you for picking that up by the way that's you know it's awesome oh yeah no i i totally i was dying to get one i'm also still watching like a hawk for the for the limited run um, hardcover edition. Yeah, there's no uh, there's no release date on that yet. Um, signature sheets were sent in a few weeks ago. I haven't heard anything, probably because I've been too busy with the book launch and haven't had a chance to email Paul at Thunderstorm <laughs> <laughs> to find out more, where things are. It's more like hunting this way, though. You know, <laughs> it's the, the thrill of the chase of the hardcover. I feel kind of bad yeah. because, I mean, there's only going to be 52 copies. And I, based on just the interest alone that I've seen, I, that's going to go pretty quick. Now you're making me nervous. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it goes up on a Friday because I'm off work then. So I'll just make sure I get up extra early. Uh, I'm going to have to tell, tell Paul that it needs to go live on like a Wednesday morning. No! <laughs> Damn it, Todd. <laughs> we'll set up kind of some kind of an alert system. So, yeah, I'll still be up at 3 a.m. any day of the week, Todd, so. <laughs> uh, 
Well, so the other, I was kind of interested too, when I was reading through this and knowing, you know, that you do art, I was curious because there were a lot of references, of course, to Jack's art yeah. um, and these, you know, midnight baptism and, and these sort of things. I was curious if you had sketched anything out for those or if uh, they were more just something you had in your head. So I toyed with the idea of doing that and ultimately decided not to, uh, primarily because one of the main reasons why I got away from graphic art for so long is because I have very little command over the uh, human figure on paper. I'm really bad at drawing figure drawing. Uh, I'm more was always more of like a landscape guy uh, when it came to you know visual like realistic artwork. Um, in my mind, Jack's style was more very realistic like you know he he's kind of described as like being one of the uh successor to Bixinski, who was a polish i think he's polish uh he was a polish artist who kind of did surreal dark surreal images um but he's also kind of there's another artist that i kind of discovered over the last several months uh stefan I can't remember his last name, but his stuff is super realistic, but it's incredibly fucking creepy. Like, you pro- I, I know you guys have probably seen it on social media. The uh, the image of, like, all the people clamoring over one another for the last roll of toilet paper on this aisle. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it got shared around a lot, and it, it's it's one of his paintings. Like, he painted it in response to the, you know, the hysteria over toilet paper for some stupid fucking reason um you know he he did he does that kind of work he there's a, a painting he did of this this bald guy hovering outside a window just staring in and he's got white eyes and that's it like there's no punchline there's no like hidden thing it's just there's a creepy dude looking in through this looking at you through this window <laughs> <laughs> and but, his name is, is Stefan. Um, are you talking about Stefan Coital or whatever yes. the fuck is? Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of his shit because he creeps me the fuck out. It looks almost yeah. photographic, but like if if I had unlimited money, I would probably hire him to do the renditions of Jack's paintings. Ah. Uh, because he has the kind of style that I was seeing in my mind. So, you know, from the the painting that Jack did, this reference that Jack did of, like, his ex-girlfriend who ended up being a waitress at the club where the Yellow Kings played their final show. I don't know if anybody caught that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I didn't. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah uh, it's reference she went on out out west to be a waitress at uh, the Hyades Club in Los Angeles. Uh, so, you know, kind of give you a, a, a spoiler on what happened to her. Um, you know, there's that one. There's the Congregation of Jackals, which is the wow. image of the the clan uh, burning. You know with torches and everything outside of a house and this uh, uh, black child is watching from the window. <laughs> uh, 
also reference to, you know, my Corbin's disgusting history. Um, and then there's Midnight Baptism, which, uh, kind of a funny story, actually. So, with the Thunderstorm edition of Devil's Creek, uh, Paul hired Francois Valancourt, who did the uh, paintings for that uh, amazing letterpress edition of Stephen King's Revival. Uh, when I saw those, I knew I wanted, you know, I wanted Francois to do something related to my work because he's an amazing artist. Um, when we were talking about different ideas for the cover for the, the Thunderstorm edition, I suggested, you know, well, there's this pretty graphic depiction of, you know, a painting that's, you know, described in the story. It's pretty thematic and ties the whole thing together, really. I mean, it, it kind of starts that way and ends that way in this cosmic grotto under the earth. And, you know, Francois read the book and he's like, I don't know if I could do this <laughs> because it's pretty graphic. <laughs> and, you know, this isn't really a, you know, a spoiler per se. It doesn't give anything away about the story, but, you know, for listeners who haven't read the, the book, I mean, to give you an idea of how graphic it is, it's called Midnight Baptism, and it's basically a group of children who are being baptized slash uh, sacrificed in the center of this, you know, this twilight grotto while on the shoreline, all the parishioners who are naked are masturbating. And, uh, so unfortunately that is not the cover. <laughs> um, but you know, if, if I, if I had, again, if I had unlimited money, I, I would definitely commission Stefan, Stefan Coital, uh, to, paint that because I think he would do it justice and make it as creepy as it appears in my head. Yeah. I'm looking, I've, I've been looking at some of his portfolio here after you pinned him down because the other Stefans I was looking at, I was like, Nope, that's a puppy. I don't think this is right. So yeah, this is, this is definitely oh, the terrible. guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is awesome. Sorry, I'm going to get totally sucked in now. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, I, you know, yeah, he's... <laughs> check out more of his work. He's an amazing artist. Pretty, pretty fucking talented, yeah. Um, he's got a very, very, very large por portfolio on ArtStation. Out of, what is ArtStation? Is that just... Sorry. It's kind of like... Um, what's the other big art? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, the the painting with the kids who are just levitating off the ground. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> I mean. Kids I mean, are creepy enough without levitating, so, honestly. It's, it's such an innocuous idea. I mean, it's just like, here's some people who are hovering off the ground. It's like they could be flying away, but no. They're just kind of all staring at you. Uh, you know, you've got the the one. I'm looking at the one right now where it's the house. It's it's snowing, and there are these figures made of snow just standing on the roof. Oh yeah, I saw that. 
Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of my favorites, though, is the one of Santa Claus coming down the chimney, and it's, like, all these different limbs that are contorting and shit coming out of it, like he's a spider. <laughs> That's a wholesome Christmas image right there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I could definitely see him doing, you know, renditions of some of uh, Jack Tremley's artwork. Yeah, I sort of want to figure out how to make this happen at this point, but sorry. <laughs> this is going, going on yet another tangent. So. Well, it's okay. Like, if, if everybody rushes out to buy a copy of Devil's Creek in a few years with the royalties, I might be able to pay, afford to pay him. Uh, you know. So yeah, you don't you don't have to actually read the book or anything. Everybody just go buy the fucker so you can see that artwork. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, highly recommend you read the book too. Honestly. Thank yes. You. Yeah, and I'm I'm very excited to read your Midnight in the Pentagram story, the because that's the one you said was connected to it. Is that right? Yeah, it, it takes place in the same universe. I mean, it doesn't reference Stafford by name or anything. It's more just you know backwoods country setting with uh, old ways referenced um, standing stones on the edge of a farm. That sort of thing. Uh, Very cool. Also a pretty extreme story. Uh, I wrote that as a break from Devil's Creek. I took like two weeks off to write that story for an open call that ended up never happening. Uh, so it found a home with Midnight in the Pentagram, which is pretty cool. So I'm not sure on the release date of that yet either. Do you know? By any chance? <laughs> I do not. Um, I feel like I tried to prod Kenneth Kane about it the last time we emailed over edits, but I don't think I got anything out of him. Maybe it was August. Maybe it is August. It might be. I'm not sure. I'll have to talk to Ken and badger him about it. Yeah, you probably have more clout. Eh. Go, u- go oh. use that clout. Okay, I'll get right on that. <laughs> Hold on, let me let me pick up my clout and go up there to the phone. Uh, since you kind of mentioned that that uh, story was extreme too, Todd, do you? I know you had mentioned like your earlier stuff, which I had. I think I started reading you around the time of uh, Ugly Little Things. I like how you said it was kind of more weird, and then Devil's Creek was kind of your attempt at you know a more extreme sort of horror style. And then this story, do you find yourself kind of moving more in that direction or not really? These were just kind of what occurred to you at that time. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, my fiction kind of goes wherever it goes. Um, I don't, you know, devil's Creek was probably the, one of the few times where I've made a concerted effort to, go as far as I can most of the time it's just like well let's see where this goes and then I'll you know I'll address it you know when it comes up if it comes up uh you know it's you know I, I don't write extreme stuff for the sake of extreme stuff I mean it's not intentional you know in that respect I mean 
uh, you know, with with this particular story for Midnight in the Pentagram, I wouldn't even say that it's extreme in terms of the descriptions. It's more just the subject matter that's implied. Uh, there's a, you know, there is a, a rape scene in it. It's not, you know, in your face. It's, you know, something that happens and it leads to, you know, the, the bad guy getting their comeuppance. Um, that's all I can really say without spoiling the whole thing. Um, but you know, that's, that to me is extreme because that's something that I previously, you know, years past wouldn't write about. And because I never really had any, you know, never also never really had a story that featured that. Uh, you know, it, I when it comes to extreme horror, I'm not very well read in that subgenre. Um, the few things that I have read, I didn't particularly like. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just. Again, a lot of it just seems like, you know, they're just throwing, you know, blood and gore against the wall to see what sticks. And, you know, for effect. And I'd rather that, you know, there be a reason for it that makes sense in the context of the story. Um, You know, again, it's I know I feel like I'm talking in circles on this one, but I I really can't say. Uh, Again, it kind of depends on the story and where it goes. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, because you know sometimes like when we s- kind of see that sort of thing, like sometimes there is a reason. But like you said, sometimes you know that's just the story that happened to come to you in that instance. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long day, guys. I'm glad that I'm able to form a coherent thought at this point. <laughs> I was um I was kind of curious on that because I'm I'm still like fairly new, you know, kind of to the horror scene, so I'm not always quite as caught up. But have you have you done a lot in the way of short fiction before, or do you um, find longer fiction to be easier to deal with? I, I think. I mean, I. I didn't really start writing short horror fiction in earnest until around 2013. Um, and most of the stories that came out of that, you know, that period of a couple of years ended up in ugly little things. Uh, since then, especially since finishing Devil's Creek, the, the first draft, I've, you know, cranked out a lot of short fiction uh, in the last you know, couple of years. Um you know, I, I, I like writing short stories uh, primarily because of the, the gratification that you, you can write it in a, in a weekend and be done. You know, a novel can take months or years. Uh, and I, I kind of feel when, I, when a project that I'm working on goes for an extended period of time, I feel like I'm starting to stagnate and lose track of the story and where what I was wanting to do with it initially. And, and I, I go through that with everything, even short fiction, but I feel like it's more prominent with novels and novellas. Uh, 
I went through that with Scanlines. I went through that with Final Reconciliation. I went through that with Devil's Creek. I mean, there was a a point. I guess it was right around after I'd finished the second part. So that was right around the 50,000 word mark. And I realized, okay, shit, this is going to be way longer than I thought it was going to be. I had taken some time off because that was, you know, con season. And, uh, you know, I had just come back from Nikon, was trying to just kind of get, you know, you kind of come back to the world from something like that. And you kind of have to recalibrate yourself. Um, you know, I, it seems like I worked on the cup, the first couple of chapters of part three seems like they took forever because uh, I was you know feeling like shit I don't know where I'm going with this I've lost the way this is going to suck it's going to be terrible and then you you know in situations like that you just write through it uh, you just keep going and cut out the parts that don't make sense and then stitch it all together to make people think that you knew what the fuck you were doing all along uh that's you know, so I don't, accurate. <laughs> I don't know a single writer who who hasn't had to, you know hasn't felt that and so but I, I like the I like the short story because it's this compact little thing but I also like the challenge of them because you know you can write about anything across ninety thousand to you know one hundred twenty thousand words I, I think that's easier than taking an idea and condensing it down to five or six thousand words to be fully fleshed out with characters with setting you know all that stuff that you go to a novel for but in this tiny little package and it's you know it's tough but when done effectively i think it's more powerful than a novel um so does that answer your question it does. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I was, I was thinking about that and that I've not thought about it that way before, but I think you're right. I think that, that it does have a lot of impact if it's done well. Um, you know, because I think it's, uh, it has a little more reach or it can, um, especially if someone's going to read it all in one sitting. So you don't have the impact of it stretched out over, you know, however long the reading takes. Yeah. It's kind of hard to, to really pin down, the, re- the readers who prefer one or the other. I mean, ultimately, you're not, you know, I, you know, we all write our stories just to write the stories. We're not, you know, really worried about the audience per se. But um, some readers will be like, you know, I like really, really, really long fiction that I can just kind of lose myself in. And then you've also got the ones that are like, well, I have a short attention span, so I've only got 20 minutes to read this, you know, this thing. And that's why, you know, and I get it. You know, I'm kind of in the same boat. I mean, I don't have a lot of reading time. I, most of my reading right now is in audio form. Um, so, yeah, I, I I totally understand why people would prefer one of the uh, over the other. I mean, it's, yeah, and it's. 
I don't know. Of course, then then like you're looking and like Todd opens his coat and he's like, I have something for everyone over here. Look, you've got novellas. You've got a 400 page novel. <laughs> Some short stories coming out. I'm like, that, uh, I'm like that, merchant, that merchant character in Resident Evil 4. You know, what are you buying? <laughs> <laughs> and then Todd revealed his giant nerdiness. <laughs> Which was a shock no, to all of us. I, I was gonna say because every fucking one of us was just shocked <laughs> as hell by that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all all eleven of our yeah. <laughs> all, all all eleven of our listeners just passed out. I'm sure. Oh no! Make it ten now. I'm unsubscribing after this is over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, I, I do try to have something for everybody. Um, you know, I kind of, maybe in, in the near future after society is crumbled and it's a post-apocalyptic setting, I can be that creepy guy in the overcoat that's in the dark alley going, hey, kid, <laughs> you want to read a story? I got some stories for you. <laughs> Yeah. That's how you have to sell horror stories in Corbin, right? He's practically uncut. <laughs> <laughs> I got the best shit on the East Coast. That, that's our episode title, Practically Uncut. <laughs> all, this, all, all this is to say that I... After after the the Monstrum books get re-released through Bloodshot next year, I am uh, going to be looking at putting together my next collection. So, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I, I I was looking back through my my writing folders and realized that I've got enough content for another for another collection, which is fucking insane. Uh, I didn't realize that I had written that much in the last couple of years since finishing Devil's Creek. So. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that eventually happening. So, provided oh, the sorry. the re-release of the monochrome novels don't completely tank my career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man, that's a big risk, dude. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I appreciate your concern. <laughs> Oh, I apologize. I'm just having fun with you. No, that's cool, dude. I, get it. <laughs> I, I actually did not get to read those, so I'm actually kind of. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's okay. I mean, it, it they uh, revisiting them has been interesting because I get to see. It's kind of like I'm I'm seeing a younger version of myself because I, I wrote that first novel when I was. 23 oh my god you're more you're more courageous than i am uh well i mean i it's a revised and expanded version i mean i I've, okay. i went through it uh i went through it pretty heavily and added some stuff to kind of make it look like i knew what the fuck i was doing all along because it was an unplanned trilogy and now i'm trying to go back and 
you know, fill in the cracks to make it look like, oh, yeah, it was totally planned. I had yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's like when the cat accidentally falls off the table and rolls over and just saunters away like, yeah, I totally that's, meant to see that. That pretty much sums up, that sums up the monochrome right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Uh, you're gonna are you gonna use that blurb well, it's kind of it's kind of funny that you mentioned that you use the cat you know as an example because in the first book a uh, cat dies awesome uh, yeah <laughs> well no it's funny because i used to uh when i first self-published the original edition uh back in the day i got hate mail for that oh uh, yeah um, yeah, Jeremy Hepler got hate mail for his uh, dead cat too and uh, cricket hunters. Uh, so that's still a thing. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm I've got four cats that I can point to to say, see, I love cats. Four out of six are still alive, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that interview with Jeremy too, where he was like, "I don't understand. It's it's fictional. I didn't right. actually kill the cat." I'm like, "I know." Yeah, I know. It's not. it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I I understand why people don't like to watch movies where the dog dies. I get it. I don't like watching movies where anything bad happens to any animal. Uh, but you know, and I I admit that I have shied away from. In recent years, I've shied away from writing, you know, even referencing anything like that where, you know, animals, things happen to them. Uh, but in the context, though. in the context of this particular story, it made sense. And, uh, you know, it's still in there. So trigger warning. Dead <laughs> <laughs> kitties, everybody. Some cats, though, just fucking deserve to die, man. No, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, no, I just mean fictional ones, you know, like Churchill and, and Pet Cemetery. I'm Cemetery. glad you backpedaled that because we were about to get so much hate mail. <laughs> I should mention that the cat's name is Shane. <laughs> <laughs> the one that dies. He's I'm really right fucking old. <laughs> he wanders in front of a beer truck and gets squashed. <laughs> uh, I yeah, love cats. Uh, Ask my wife; she'll yeah. back me. Same here. I'm I'm a huge you know cat person, and uh, you know which is why I mean I got an email from a friend's uh, daughter. She was really young when she read that book, and she wanted to know why I was so, you know did such a horrible thing to that kitty. And I explained, you know, well, I wrote her back and I said, well, you know, I have my reasons, X, Y, and Z, and I hope you'll forgive me. And, you know, I kind of took that to heart. So, you know, I, I had an opportunity to revise the book in 2010. and, you know, I re, I rewrote most of the book back then. Uh, that was basically the project that launched my uh, publishing company Precipice Books um, I did a Kickstarter for it. it was one of the earliest Kickstarters for books that was successful um, back in 2010 and 
you know, it's kind of what started me on this journey because until until after the re-release of A Life Transparent, I didn't really even consider myself a horror author. I was just writing stories and putting them out there. You know, genre wasn't something I was concerned about, and especially because that book in particular doesn't easily fall into any genre. Uh, I don't think. And that's why I never bothered to try to get it published traditionally because I knew when it was done that there was no way in hell anybody was going to you know, take this on. Because um, it's it's not quite sci-fi. I mean, it, it, there are definite el- heavy elements of horror. Don't get me wrong. Uh, ultimately, overall, it's classified as a horror novel uh, for very good reason. There's also elements of a thriller, suspense. Uh, there's you could make a case for sci-fi, although I personally wouldn't. Um, you know, and I think my friend Eric Pruitt summed it up best. He he described the first book as if Stephen King wrote The Matrix. So Ooh. take that, you know, however you wish, um, but. You know, we're, we're releasing the revised, expanded editions of the first two novels, Life Transparent and The Liminal Man, in uh, next year. And I'm re- hoping to wrap up the final novel, which I swore I would never finish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I stepped away from that many years ago and said, you know, kind of swore it off and because I, I was struggling with my writing at the time uh it's ultimately what led me down the road of ugly little things final wreck devil's creek you know the whole nine and you know i started thinking about that last novel and the problems that it had and how to streamline them and it's one thing i will say about writing devil's creek and writing about you know final wreck and scan lines and everything is that it kind of taught me how to be a better storyteller um so taking that experience and going back to you know that failed manuscript and kind of pulling out all the parts that weren't working and then figuring out how to you know put together what I wanted to keep and then go from there and build on that uh it, it seemed to seem to work cuz I'm 61,000 words into it I'm expecting to be done with it in another week or two uh, and that's a book that I started in 2013. So that third book, uh, titled Non-Entity, will be coming out late 2021 from Bloodshot. Awesome. So you, you've, you've already got your next your next little kind of setup lined up here. It's all Keesling all the time. Oh yeah, totally. See, I've this is all part of my master plan. You won't, you know, you won't be able to turn around without seeing my name. <laughs> I can't That's guarantee sad. it'll be in a positive or negative one. <laughs> <laughs> now is uh, is uh, Kenneth Kane the editor on that one as well? Uh, no. Ah. No. Uh, my my editor Amelia Bennett. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, now Ken Ken is um he is editing. Ken's a busy guy. Yeah. Uh, he you know he's doing the edit editorial work for Silver Shamrock, but he's also pulling 
editorial duty for a very special anthology uh, that we have been working on quietly for the last year or so uh, called One of Us, a tribute to Frank Michaels Arrington. Uh, Frank was a well-known book reviewer in the horror circles, very nice guy. He, he passed away last year, uh, somewhat surprisingly. Uh, I know mm-hmm. a lot of us were shocked by that. Um, and a very kind soul, and he was a part of our... Uh, our writing writing group. I mean, we we initially started out meeting in Kenneth Kane's basement for our uh, the Pennsylvania chapter of the Horror Writers Association, but we also wanted didn't want to be exclusive to just that organization. So we kind of rebranded ourselves as the Mid Atlantic Dark Fiction Society, or MADS, and that way we could you know have other folks from you know, outside Pennsylvania, from New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, if they wanted to travel, because Ken lives in the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area. Uh, so it's all pretty central, um, centrally located to all those other you know, states. And, you know, we want it to be as inclusive as possible. So, you know, we all started out there in his basement, and Frank was there for the founding of the chapter. He was there for the founding of the of Mads and I mean he had his own spot on Ken's couch (laughs) you know he was always (laughs) in his spot he was always on his phone you know tweeting and talking about just hanging out with us and taking photos and everything and so after he passed away we had initially been thinking about putting together a anthology of a separate theme and Frank passed, and then afterward, you know, after Scares That Care last year, um, you know, we were having a discussion, and I suggested that maybe we redirect and make it about Frank. And, uh, you know, all the proceeds for that anthology are going to go to, um, I forget the name of it, but it's basically the American Transplant, I think it's the American Transplant Foundation, Um, because Frank... In the last years of his life, was trying to. Uh, he was on a donor list for for a kidney, and he had a lot of false starts there. Uh, I know one particular heartbreaking instance. He uh, he was lined up and going to the hospital because he had he had a kidney and it was damaged in transit. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was pretty disheartening. Um. So yeah. Uh, Ken's working on that. We've got the table of contents has not been released yet. I'll, you know, I'll let Ken and Pete at Bloodshot handle all that. But I wrote the forward for it. Um, I'm designing the, the cover for it, and I'm also doing the interior layout. Uh, everybody involved with it is donating their time uh, and talent to the project just to honor him. Because he was, you know, he was a sweet guy. He was a good guy. And I don't know, it seems like lately there are fewer and fewer good guys, especially in the genre. Uh, yeah, I agree. So. Well, that's, uh, that's a project that I'm really looking forward to. That's that's really awesome. I mean, and that's, you know, when you have that connection with them to be able to put your work into it and, you know, that just means something. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's been a labor of love for all of us. Um, and Ken, to his credit, has been busting his ass, you know, trying to get contracts in line, get edits out, get proofreads out. I mean, he's volunteering his time, essentially. Uh, and that's, you know, that's no small feat. That book is going to be enormous when it comes out. I'm not really at liberty to, to talk about word count or anything, but trust me, if uh, any any of you or the listeners here are familiar with, um, with the Widowmakers anthology that Pete put out years ago to help support James Newman after his uh, accident. I remember that. Yeah, that's a huge book. Uh, I would say this is going to be on par with that in terms of length wow. and, and quality. That's impressive. Um, on both counts, really. So. Yeah, it's, you know, and all all the profit is going to go to charity. No one is profiting anything from this except for the charity. As, as it should be. Yes. Um, I am very excited for that, and I'm, I'm excited for the other stuff you've got coming out, too. Um, I'm I'm just I'm you know I'm new to your writing but I'm I'm a fan I absolutely love Devil's Creek. Um, Thank you. Thank and you. And I'm super excited to kind of so I think the plan as we've discussed is to this was more kind of an overview and then we've talked about maybe having you come on some more to kind of drill down some similar to how we did with the fearing is that still the plan? Uh yeah I mean it's good for me if it's good for you guys. Okay Fuck yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that was what we were kind of talking about before. I wanted to make sure that was so cool with with you, um, you know. Although way to way to ask me on the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's live. You know, we're totally live. So there's no way. To I was I wasn't even going to ask you. I was just going to fucking tell people. So. <laughs> so Todd will be back whenever we tell him to be. Like, <laughs> yeah, Todd's going to be a you know and you know a guest on Inkeyes for the next ten years. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I thought we'd never get rid of Taff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's something because um, I've got little notes on like, you know, when we can get to that sort of spoilery kind of thing. So um, so we'll definitely be looking forward to doing that. And then I also wanted to make sure that we announced our contest. Yes. Um, so we are going to. Well, Todd, Todd is, is contributing one of these fabulous um, idols uh, for a giveaway and um, so the plan for that is what we would like you guys to do since, um, Devil's Creek is based on loosely on, on an actual, uh, kind of urban legend spot. Uh, we thought it would be cool. Anybody who wants to participate, if you would maybe take a picture, um, maybe of yourself with Devil's Creek in, in the urban legend spot in your town, or just a picture of that spot. If you can't make it out to it, you know, with a copy of the book. And uh, maybe if you feel like doing a short write-up on it, um, we can post them on Ink Heist. Uh, we love to see the Urban Legend stuff. And um, I don't think we've come up with a hashtag yet, have we? Uh, but by the time we post this episode, by God, we'll have one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it, if it wouldn't get drowned out by all the other noise on Twitter, I would suggest just using hashtag Hail Satan like I did with the release party. <laughs> 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 that was the highlight of my day, I must say. Making all those people say, Hail Satan, in chat. 
Hail Stan. Yep. Hail Stan. <laughs> but yes, we will come up with a hashtag of some kind. And um, we really are, are psyched to see everybody's uh, contributions, what we've got going on in the way of urban legends and creepy haunted places. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you definitely want this idol because it's, it's fucking fantastic. And don't let your children steal it. Uh, I should also <laughs> add to that. Um, I will also include a signed paperback copy of Devil's Creek. Nice. Yeah, right on. Nice. Sweetening um, the pot. Yes. Um, very much so. Well, very cool. Um, I'm, I'm super excited to see what comes out of that. I'm really just very excited about your launch. I'm, I'm really glad to, you know, that there's a lot of interest in it because it, it deserves it. Devil's Creek is fucking fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you coming on. It's we've we've kept you here almost two hours, and we'll be dragging you back regularly. So <laughs> that's totally fine. You know, just uh, give me time to put some clothes on. Uh, yeah. Well, none of us do, but if you. Oh uh, shit! There, there it is. I baited you for that, Shane. <laughs> like anybody needed to fucking bait me. <laughs> That's true. That's Probably so needed true. to put out traps to keep me away. More <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right, brother. I love you, man. I love you too, man. Thanks, guys, so much. Yep. I, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about my book. Uh, and all the support means the world to me. Thank you. And Absolutely. yeah, and ditto, man. Um, I'll hit you offline and we'll start working on when our next date will be. Sounds good. Man, All peace. Right. Right, have a good Talk. night. <laughs> Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>